I uh, Mike and I both worked at one time for the. It wasn't for Target. It was for Qualex, the one-hour photo that was the stands yeah. that were at Target. <laughs> oh, like how they. It was fantastic. <laughs> We did not have to follow any of the target rules. Yeah. <laughs> they couldn't tell us what to do. So yeah, it was yeah, great. yeah. I could be late, and they would just be upset, but they couldn't do anything about it. Welcome to I Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, producer of the acclaimed series Beats for the Age of Science, chopped and screwed lo-fi edits of educational music to study to, (laughs) featuring such classics as Why is an Insect? How do the rocks have a language? Where is the fish? And of course, How Silk is the Ocean? Far out. <laughs> That's good. Mm. Well done, Sean. Thank you. Yeah. Oof. I'm co-host Jeremy. I don't even know how I follow that, but I'm going to try. I'm writing a book. I've been inspired by all the books Sean has written. Co-host Sean, and I'm writing a book of microbiographies called A Bowl of M&M's. Featuring microbiographies on Michael McDonald, Mac Miller, Malcolm McLaren, Manfred Mann's Earth Band, Marky Mark, Martina McBride, Marcus Mumford, The Meat Men, The Minutemen, Meek Mill, Melissa Manchester, Method Man, Mike and the Mechanics, The Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, Mystic Moods Orchestra, Modest Mouse, Monster Magnet, and many, many, many more. Martha and the Muffins? Would Murray and Miranda be on that list? Mm. No, I don't know anything about them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, keep that Mystic Moods Orchestra in your back pocket. I think it might come in handy soon. Hmm. I am co-host Peter Cook. And as a reminder to our listeners, the sun is a mass of incandescent gas, a gigantic nuclear furnace where hydrogen is built into helium at a temperature of millions of degrees. Wow, you guys both went far out. I just sang the lyrics. You're just saying facts. To a song from this series of albums that we're talking about today. Coincidentally, that's also what uh, Peter says when he looks in the mirror first thing in the morning every day. (laughs) This is true. That's your affirmation every morning. (laughs) (laughs) And joining us today... Although only half facts, they... They re-recorded it. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Joining us today on I'd Buy That for a Dollar is a guider of lost souls at Bulldog Nation and bass player for the Athens Unitarian Church. Welcome to the program, Mike Merva. Whoa, you should be in my microbiographies. Oh, yeah, I am. (laughs) M&M. Tell them just one, one thing about yourself. One small thing. Uh, I can juggle. All right. Microbiography achieved. It's going to print. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) And you are from 
Athens, Georgia, or that's where you currently reside anyway? I do. I currently reside in Athens, Georgia. I was born and raised in East Lansing, but of course, know y'all from my wonderful time in Kalamazoo. And now you've moved all that ways away and no DJ Mahogany. Frequent guest, number one fan of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. That is right. That is right. He's a great guy, a boon to the entire Athens community. Just always a friendly face when you see him. So, what's up, Mark? <laughs> well, Mike, you have selected a highly interesting record for today. Do you want to introduce this to our listeners? Sure. So, uh, this record is called Nature Songs. It is from a six-record set titled... Ballads for the Age of Science. These records have music and lyrics written by Heiseret and Lou Singer. And this one, they have different people recording the songs, but this one is by Moray and Miranda, a troubadour folk duo. Yeah. Yeah, this is uh, a unique selection because these are educational songs geared towards youngsters, it would seem. Indeed, indeed. And they, are, uh, they pull no punches, I will say, about the educational aspect. <laughs> they are, uh, they're, not, they're not dumbing down anything, I feel like, in some of it, at least. No. So this is officially our first educational record that we've had on the show, correct? I think you're right. We've, we've featured a few other records that were parts of series, like the Environments record. But yeah, I think this is the first time we've, we've gone this route specifically. This... This came out on Motivation Records in 1961, and uh, how about we just get into a song? Does anyone want to hear a song? <laughs> I would love to hear oh, a song. Yeah, I want to hear Let's do that. I want to, yes, please. <laughs> We're first going to listen to What Are the Parts <laughs> of a Tree, Side A, Track 3. Trunk, Roots, Crown, Bark, Cambium. A tree has roots, a trunk and a crown. The trunk grows up and the roots grow down. The roots grow down and spread all around and hold the tree firmly in the ground. Hold the tree, hold the tree, hold the tree, hold the tree. Hold the tree firmly in the ground. A tree has roots, a trunk and a crown. A trunk grows up and the roots grow down. Hold the tree, hold the tree, hold the tree, hold the tree The roots also provide nourishment for the tree. How do they do that? The root hairs 
absorb large amounts of water and minerals from the earth. This water travels through the roots, through the trunk and through the branches to the leaves. The leaves use it in making food for the tree. The minerals are used by the cells in other parts of the tree for new growth. The bark is the outer... That was the weirdest ink spot song I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're getting... They, normally they were sad, but now they're getting like dark and educational. Very factual. Yeah, really experimenting with the formula <laughs> on this one, but at least they had that spoken word middle section, at least. <laughs> it's helpful. Pull no punches. They got to teach these kids. Yeah. <laughs> I believe the children are the future. What do you guys think? <laughs> I think they're the Cambrium. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Mike, this is a very interesting selection, a different direction for us to go. How did you find this record? Well... Peter. I was in Kalamazoo and uh, let's see, it's probably around 2000 and you know, going to garage sales and there's a barn sale in Parchment um, and these records were here and they, they look pretty interesting, look good. They are from um, Parchment Elementary Schools. They have the stamps on the front saying that. Were you, were you from Parchment? Where were you from? No, I'm straight up Kalamazoo. I went to Oh, okay. yeah, I went to high school here and everything. We are standing like uh, like we could probably throw a baseball into parchment from where we stand, though. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh, okay. very nice. So I worked at Walgreens, the one that was sort of on the way to parchment on the north side of town there. And so I was always sort of over in that area. And it, it was very possible this was even on a break from work and just saw like, oh, there's a garage sale. Check that out. So did you acquire the entire set of these at that garage sale? I regret to say I acquired, I believe, five of them. I actually, when I was going through these yesterday, I looked and realized I had a record I didn't think I had because I don't have the cover to it. It was stuck in with another one of them. At this point, I think I got four there. I got another one later. And the only one I don't have is Space Songs, which apparently is the one um, that most people know because it is the one that They Might Be Giants. That song is from Why Is the Sun Yeah, the one that I quoted in my intro. Ah. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, that's When I realized that, when you suggested this, I think you mentioned that it was the same, from the same series that Why Does the Sunshine came from. I'm, and that meant something to me. I am the They Might Be Giants fan on this podcast. <laughs> it's a divisive band. They say one out of three co-hosts like them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm on your side, Peter. <laughs> I am also a fan. It helps to have kids because... There's a lot of kids' music and a lot of not-so-great kids' music, and they have some really great kids' music. So that gives you a new appreciation once you have children, and you're like, oh, I can listen to this. It's decent. Yeah, yeah, they really strongly went that direction, making a lot of music specifically for kids. They might be giants, that is. And I have to think that, that, that when they covered one of the songs from this series, that was probably one of the first times they really went that route. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very profitable. 
<laughs> yeah. So yeah, these all of these albums, space songs, experiment songs, nature songs, the one we're listening to today, and more nature songs, mm-hmm. energy and motion songs, and weather songs, they're all albums from this series that introduce scientific concepts and terms using catchy, easy-to-learn lyrics and music for grade school students. And apparently these were listened to across America in the early 1960s. They were very popular, very common. I see from Sci-Fi Magazine, I believe, called them the most successful educational recording projects of all time. (laughs) Yeah, then that seems pretty substantial. Isaac Asimov apparently was a fan. Did you see that? I didn't, but that's that's really cool. I was excited when I realized the album covers are designed by Leo Leone, who was an author and illustrator of children's books. He's best known for his 1963 picture book, Swimmy. Do you guys remember that one at all? I remember that one from childhood with the, the little black fish that's in a school of red fish. He stands out. But then like when the predator comes along, the, all, the redfish form what looks like a larger fish and swimmy is the eyeball. Does that ring any bells? Aw, no, but that's cute. <laughs> <laughs> is this and, the start of our new spinoff podcast where Peter just describes the plot of children's <laughs> literature? Because I would listen Ooh. to that. Kind of like a listen to this before falling asleep type deal. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It'd be a great sleep podcast. Yeah. All right. So there's this caterpillar. He's really hungry. (laughs) You know, it's really funny that that's the one you went to because, uh, yeah, Eric Carle's illustrations are, I mean, basically just total ripoff of of Leo's, wouldn't you say? You know what? That makes a lot of sense. There's, I was thinking just earlier that the artwork for this series is great and it's very charming, but there was something kind of instantly familiar to me about it. And aside from, like, I think I've seen these a few times flipping around. But yeah, the Eric Carl comparison is very good. Before we go any further, because I don't think we're going to be talking about the songwriters behind this too much more. We'll, we'll probably be focusing more on Murray and Miranda. But we mentioned Hi Zarat and Lou Singer. They were two New York City-born Tin Pan Alley songwriters. And they had plenty of previous songwriting experience under their belt at the time uh, that these albums came out. Uh, Zara actually wrote the lyrics to Unchained Melody, one of the most recorded songs of all time. And he, uh, Zara, hi Zara, did the lyrics and Lou Singer was responsible for the music that we're hearing. I'll also uh, bring up that Hecky Krasnow, who's apparently the music director on these albums, he is best known from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus, Frosty the Snowman, so really worked mainly in that Christmas genre, but apparently branched out to do these as well. I'm also adding him to my file of favorite names that we've encountered on the show. <laughs> we've got, we've got uh, Hecky Krasnow, Hugh McCracken, all the greats. Listening to this, I had a moment where I was like, this feels like Rudolph kind of to me. <laughs> so that makes sense now. One thing I just want to say about the song is just I really appreciate how they, the the vocals, you know, they really kind of represent a tree or they do a really good job of being sort of majestic and epic and like, I am a tree and I'm strong and big and tall and have long roots and all that stuff. I think they did a really nice job. Um, sort of portraying that in in a musical way. Yeah, obviously the lyricist 
played a part in that, but uh, also the enthusiasm and delivery from the musicians is also really important to conveying <laughs> these educational messages. And mm-hmm. both did a great job here. It seems like a pretty quality series across the board from, you know, the little bit that I checked out of the other ones. It, like they, they weren't slacking. Yeah, that's right. Agreed. Well, how about before we talk about who Murray and Miranda are, we play another selection. Jeremy, you're raising your hand. Yeah, I want to hear another one. I was just being respectful. Oh. Raising my hand. <laughs> we are in the educational setting. Right. I, I appreciate you doing that. Can someone please award Jeremy one gold star? Yes. <laughs> gold star for Robot Boy. That's a guided by voices song, Jeremy. Okay. <laughs> I made a face at Peter because I was like, I don't know what that means. No, they might be giants. No guided by voices for Jeremy. True. So next, Mike, it looks like we had selected what is a mammal. Yes, we did. Let's do that. Side A, track five. What is a mammal? Why, anyone can tell you what a mammal is. Anyone who understands. They're warm-blooded, have hair on their bodies, and suckle their young from mammary glands. So is a cat, a dog, a lion, a rabbit, and a bat. And a whale might seem like a fish to you, but a whale is really a mammal too. And then, of course, there's a chimpanzee. Well, he's a mammal like you and me. A cow is a mammal, and so is a horse, a deer, and an elephant. Well, of course, a sheep, and a goat, and a kangaroo, and many others we see at the zoo. I really love that they made some of the songs interactive, encouraging the listener to name some mammals there. And it's surprisingly inventive. I have to admit, on my first listen of these songs, I was like, man, are we really doing a kid's record? (laughs) (laughs) Jeremy Ruggle, famous hater of children. Yeah, valid. Villain from every Roald Dahl book. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's 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 kind of what I'm. Why I was so impressed with these. I mean, I got these before I had kids, but you know the the arrangements. So that's also to say, even though the music was, I think, by Lou Singer. Right? Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. So the music was by Lou Singer, but um, on these ones, Maria Miranda did all of the arrangements, and it you can really tell that if you listen to the other ones, they sound much different. But Maria Miranda arranging was a really big part of what they did generally. They considered themselves, you know, people that did folk songs and balladeers, but they really pushed in everything that I read. 
that they were interpreting material and doing it in a different way than a traditional way. And that was important to them. And they were both classically trained musicians. And for what it is, I mean, usually two voices and maybe two or three instruments. I think the arranging here is just so top notch, like really nothing. I don't think I've ever heard before with that few amount of, you know, vocals and instruments playing. And that guitar was, it sounded like they're like thumping on the whole guitar with the strings. Like it's being played in a very non-standard way that jumped out to my ear pretty quick. And I was like, oh, these people are weirdos. I like this. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. It actually kind of comes across at times on this one, at least as sort of like almost outsider music. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it made me think of when I, yeah, the way that guitar was being played. So I wasn't very surprised when I saw that music historian and preservationist Erwin Chusid was responsible for digitally restoring the six-CD box set of these that came out about 10 years ago on Harbinger, because uh, he's like the songs in the Key of Z guy, who the outsider music compilations. I think he may have even coined the term outsider music. So I wasn't surprised that he had some involvement in bringing these into the current age digitally. Yeah, absolutely. I actually reached out to him to see, because I listened to his FMU. He has a show on WFMU. I listen to every week. So just to see if he had any information, any additional information, but he did not. That was a cool reach out to see if he he, uh, (laughs) could provide any insight. He was very nice, though. Well, how about we learn a little bit about Murray and Miranda, since we've mentioned them so much. Can you do it in a fun song? Hand me the guitar, Jeremy. (laughs) (laughs) Going to start busting out the guitar every episode now. Yeah, two episodes in a row with Peter Guitar. (laughs) So, Joseph Murray was born in 1905 and raised on a sheep ranch near Cape Town in South Africa. As a young man, he played violin with the Cape Town Symphony Orchestra and in the 1920s studied composition in London, Paris, Prague, and Budapest. However, he was also a skilled guitarist with an extensive knowledge of Afrikaans folk songs. He recorded songs in Afrikaans, one of the major languages of South Africa, Uh, He recorded songs in Afrikaans for the major British record label, His Master's Voice, with the intention of them being sold to the South African market, and they were successful. And the BBC approached Murray, requesting that he translate and perform the songs for British audiences. These broadcasts were in turn heard by the head of NBC, and in 1939, Murray moved to New York City, and began hosting a weekly radio show called African Trek. He also released the album Songs of the South African Veld as Joseph Murray and his Bushveld band on the DECA label in 1941, which earned him acclaim in American folk circles. In 1942, the government set up the Office of War Information for Radio News Service, and Murray joined the war effort by overseeing Voice of America broadcast to the Netherlands and South Africa. 
And this is where we enter Rosa de Miranda, born in 1912 in Amsterdam, Holland. And in 1942, when she and Murray met, she was a recent immigrant to the United States with a rich musical heritage. Her mother had been an opera singer, and Miranda had accompanied her mother on piano at performances and was also an experienced vocalist. But Murray did not know any of this when Miranda applied for a job at the African's desk at the Office of War Information as a Dutch translator. And so for three years, she worked as a news editor and translator before Murray learned of her musical talent. I guess one day, Murray was rehearsing with the Bushveld Band when Miranda entered the studio and overheard them performing some of her beloved Dutch songs and she impulsively joined in, providing harmonic counterpoints to what they were doing, which intrigued Murray. Suddenly this person who's worked for him for three years is displaying excellent musicianship. And they soon became both singing partners and romantic partners. They were married in 1946. The original Jim and Pam. <laughs> Morrison? <laughs> no, from The Office. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Pam Morrison? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were. You're right, though, Jeremy. They were the original Jim and Pam. Together, they soon chose to pursue a career as balladeers. They had an extended engagement performing at New York City's Village Vanguard and also a well-received performance at the New York Town Hall the reception of both of these being tremendous convinced them to move to Los Angeles to further their career ambitions. They were soon featured as singers in the Hal Wallace produced film noir rope of sand starring Burt Lancaster and set in Southwest Africa. And they enjoyed many years as successful performers appearing throughout the country on stage, radio and television. They even sang for president Truman and, of course, they began recording and releasing albums regularly on the Decca label starting in the late 1940s. And they had released about a dozen albums before they got to what we're hearing today. So at that, you know, this is early 1960s. So probably the, the type of stuff that they had been doing, which how much of, of that have you guys checked out, like, their other material, the pre-educational material. A little bit. I was listening to Waltzing Matilda, a couple other like classic folk songs that they had some pretty wild, especially Miranda's harmonies are like pretty wild on a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Her harmonies are really incredible. I have a, uh... I found the Sundown Songs record, and I have a Christmas album that is not very good. Um, and then I've downloaded some other stuff. But it is all, it has this, this similar feel to it for the most part. I have to think that what they had been doing basically commercially throughout the 1950s, probably early 1960s, this might have been the best career option for them at, at that point as far as you know being able to re record these that had kind of a guaranteed audience <laughs> for them. They And they did two of these. They did nature songs and, and more nature songs for this series. Uh, of course, they did continue to work after that until 
Joseph died in Los Angeles in 1978, and Miranda lived for another eight years and passed away in 1986. So both are no longer with us. I mean, they were born at the turn of the 20th century. Yeah. I'd never heard of them prior to you suggesting this and had no, you have to guess that people like this had a career prior to these moments. Um, They had quite a career prior to this. Yeah, indeed. I mean, that, uh, the impression I get is the radio show that he was doing was, was pretty popular and it was, you know, simulcast here in America and in South Africa, I think from what I, my understanding is, um, so they seem, yeah, they seem pretty big. And that the More Nature Songs album, I will just say, has some absolute bangers on it. The song about the evolution of the horse is especially good. So I encourage people to check that one out. Very good. Well, next up on the list of songs we were going to play from this one, we had Song of the Rocks. I want the chopped and screwed DJ Hard Bargain version. All right, I'm sending you the flag files right now. <laughs> oh, thank you for making them flag. <laughs> I would also like to hear that. <laughs> this definitely seems like ripe for sampling, this album. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, let's listen to Song of the Rocks, side A, track seven. Which of you are the metamorphic rocks? We are. I'm Slate. I'm Nice. I'm Schist. I'm Quartzite. We were formed when other rocks were squeezed and changed by heat and pressure in the earth. Which of you are the igneous rocks? We are. I'm Granite. I'm Basalt. We're two of the igneous rocks. We were formed when molten rock solidified. And how about the sedimentary rocks? We are sedimentary rocks. Limestone. Sandstone. Shale. We were formed when rocks were broken down by weathering and deposited in layers in the rivers, lakes, and oceans. We are all solid members of the rock family. We're metamorphic, igneous, or sedimentary. I'm granite. I'm agate. I'm sandstone. I'm soapstone with flint, gneiss, and gypsum, and quartzite. I'm limestone. I'm pumice. And I am mica schist. We're porphyric, obsidian, and marble. We are all different branches of the same family tree, but we're all solid. The reason I chose that song, uh, a couple things. First, the we only heard a portion of it, but they do a couple different types of rock groups, um, and they're really trying to mirror the types of rocks in their voices. And this is something they do throughout the album, is just sort of 
trying to encapsulate, you know, the thing that they are singing about, which is a nature thing, an inert, you know, it's living, but it's for the most part inert objects, but you can feel the personality that they're trying to give them. But also because if you ever need a song on a radio show or a mixtape to go directly into Shellac's Song of the Minerals, this is a fantastic one. (laughs) Pro tip. (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking with that song how theatrical they come across as performers that they can get into all those different characters of rocks. Yeah, they were very uh, intentional about all of that. They, you know, saw themselves as balladeers, as we've said, and interested in interpreting material. But from some of the reading I've done, uh, Miranda especially very much thought that performance should be a performance. Like you should be dressed up and you should really get into it and um, have a a plan and interesting songs. And apparently she was uh, not at all a fan of Woody Guthrie. in his dress choice of songs or manner of singing from uh, something that I read somewhere. Finally, someone taken down Woody. <laughs> right. Yeah. I saw that. And from what I just read a little bit about her, yeah, it seemed like she could be quite uh, critical of others. She had a very, her mindset on, yeah, what a performer should be, how songs should go, etc. Exactly. I think Joseph was a little bit more laid back, but that's that's the impression I got too. Peter, I'm curious, did you happen to find the Tupac connection with this episode? Not yet. I'll keep looking. Uh, someday we'll find it, the Tupac connection. But in the meantime, do you, do you want to know what it actually is? I'm not even oh, joking. Oh, you're there. You're saying there is a Tupac connection. There is a Tupac connection. What? It's not the way that you would think, though. So. <laughs> After Murray passed, it says that Miranda spent the last few years of her life accompanied by her cats, Tupac, and Yupanki. <laughs> Aw. I, I missed that. You did. I found it. <laughs> Incredible. Well, because you did that, Sean. Yeah, good work. That I, you, Since you did that work for me, I'm going to do some work for you, and that is recommending some similar albums well it sounds only fair take it away (laughs) well i didn't work too hard because what we're gonna do is just list off the other albums in this series (laughs) (laughs) but we which we already did but we'll, we'll mention the artists who are behind those albums as we do it so you should be able to if you dig around enough you should be able to come across these still they're still out there they they sold many and they're not they're not fetching a whole lot of money. It seems if you buy the box set, the the six disc box set on LP, that seems the most expensive way to purchase these. Those are going for like a hundred dollars. But if you find them individually, you should be able to get them for a pretty good deal. So Space Songs features the musicians Tom Glazer and Dottie Evans. Experiment Songs is Dorothy Collins. Uh, you're you're familiar with Dorothy Collins outside of the series, aren't you, Mike? Uh, I am. I have a couple albums of Dorothy Collins, and they are they're interesting. They're kids' music, but um, you know, I feel like during this era, sort of the '60s, people could 
50s, 60s, people could be a little bit more out there with their kids' songs. I mean, um, you know, the mammal song talks about mammary glands, and I feel like maybe you couldn't get away with that necessarily in a kid's song these days, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, this is a, a different time for kids' songs. Mm-hmm. There's, of course, as we mentioned, there's, there is also more nature songs. That is also Marae and Miranda. There's Energy and Motion Songs, which is, again, Tom Glazer and Dottie Evans. And then Weather Songs is just Tom Glazer. And that's this series, Ballads for the Age of Science. Some people refer to these as singing science records. It says that on the back, I believe. that Mine, uh, Mike, did yours have the booklet with all the lyrics inside of it included? Mine does, yeah. All the ones that I got have the booklet, and I love how at the bottom of every page, there's a little square that says, when you see an empty space, put a picture in its place. Yeah, it's more encouragement to interact with the material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mine, no one had tampered with mine. Mine's a <laughs> clean copy. Why haven't you put anything in the space yet, Peter? <laughs> I probably should. Yeah, really. That's what we're doing after this episode, Peter. <laughs> you and me, we're going to sit down and fill in these spaces. Get out the crayons. Yeah. <laughs> Actually sounds wholesome as fuck. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, this was a really fun record. Thank you for suggesting it. I had a wonderful time, guys. Uh, it was... All that I hoped it would be. Yeah, now that Jeremy is officially a fan of educational children's music, I'm sure this is going to be a staple of the show from here on out. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> That's it's too dangerous of territory for me. There might be a kid's chorus. Luckily, there wasn't in this record. but Of, of children all singing in unison? Yeah. Your, your, least, your least favorite instrument? <laughs> I mean, Jeremy has always said that children should be seen and not heard, so... <laughs> wow <laughs> well um if you need a part two and i can remember the name of the album whose name i can't remember there's some really hot tracks on that you're hired do um, you want to go deeper into the <laughs> the 70s children's music genre I've, I've got your back yeah we we asked mike if he had any other children's records he wanted to recommend and he said there's a really good one but he's, he's got to dig in and find out what it is so more to come on that it's probably just raffi though isn't it oh <laughs> uh, you wish uh no it's clearly 70 session musicians that were told we want 100 children's songs and they were probably very high and the stuff they came up with is unbelievable crazy psych funk stuff oh it's really great. oh yeah well i think you you figure out what it is and and we'll have you back next season to talk about that one that you'll be the you're going to be the kids like record. designated yeah. <laughs> designated kids <laughs> records guy i will take it i'll take it well it was great talking to you it's it's been years to, to our listeners it's been years since i've seen mike in person it's mostly just been social media interactions here and there they've picked up a little bit ever since uh we made the dj mahogany connection mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yeah it was uh great to see you too and uh i'll be up in may so i'll try to i'll try to look you up deal well 
we had selected the balance of nature to finish off the episode, the final track on side B. Did you have anything you wanted to say about this one, Mike, before we say our goodbyes? I just wanted to say that I think, let's see if I can find the line here. This rhyme is something for the ages. The flowers and the fruits need pollination and the balance of nature consideration. Oh, yeah. Dropping some That's hot. knowledge in rhymes here. Bars. Mm-hmm. That's too political for my taste. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Sean's distinctively anti-nature. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. We're taking so many stances on this episode. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I think that wraps it up for this installment of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. My name is co-host Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. I was Mike Merva. Eminem. If it weren't for the birds, remember my pet. The balance of nature would be upset. The insects of the world would surely double and the people of the world would be in trouble. Consideration.